Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. On today's episode, John talks to Dr. Aisha Juman, founder and president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. Then, John, Amber, and I look at what the U.S. government should consider when thinking about the Yemeni crisis. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. We're here today with Dr. Aisha Juman. Aisha, welcome to Babel. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yemen, the country in which you were born, is a country which right now is facing tremendous suffering in the midst of a man-made war. Of Yemen's 30 million people, the UN estimates that more than 24 million of them need aid. Uh, 10 million of them are one step away from starvation. You are somebody who for years has been working to provide help to Yemen, not as a full-time job, because your full-time job is an epidemiologist around the world, but your part-time activity has been helping Yemenis in need. How did you get involved in that activity? So helping people in need is is a Yemeni concept. I grew up in a, in a home that was very charitable. We always had an open house, which means people can come in anytime and spend as long as they want to. I remember as a child asking my mom about the family in particular because I didn't like their son. I used to fight with him. And I said, when are they going to go back? And she gave me a huge lecture about that. You don't ask your guests when they're going to go back. They're going to stay as long as they want to. (laughs) So the other principle actually I learned from home is that when you do good deeds, when you do try to help people, that you're going to have always challenges. Yemen has been in a war, a civil war, for four and a half years. How did you get involved helping people who were suffering because of that war? I've been helping people in Yemen since I know myself. And even before the war occurred, um, I was sponsoring orphans. I was sending money to poor families. So that's something that's been going on. But when the war started, knowing the circumstances and knowing the economy, I knew immediately what the impact would be. And that's when I started, you know, I devoted probably most of my salary to sending to Yemen. I was working for the Center for Disease Control as an epidemiologist, and my uh, volunteer work was to work with the refugees. So we worked with the Bosnian refugees, with the Iraqi Kurdish refugees, and, and so forth. So I reached out to that base, and I said, hey, this time it's Yemen. Would you be able to help me? Sure enough, I had over $70,000 in my personal account that needed to go to Yemen. And then I realized we really need now to have an organization. I cannot afford to have that much money coming into my personal account. So we started Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation in August of 2017. 2018 was our first full year. Our budget for a new organization was over $600,000. This year, it's about a million dollars. That's our second year. And that is because people had been extremely generous with us, but also because 100% of our 
funding go to services. Everybody in our organization is a volunteer, whether it's in Yemen or whether it's here. And this is what's really fascinating to me about Yemen is that uh, people who are helping us, who are volunteer with us, are not people who are rich. These are people who have really severe economic uh, hardship, but they are willing to help. I remember clearly when uh, the bombing of Aden happened, someone in Hadramaut in Mukalla called me here in the U.S. That's in the eastern, eastern part in of the Yemen. Eastern pro- yes, province. And he called to say, I know you have family in Aden. Uh, please ask them to come and stay with us. This is a colleague that I work with. Uh, I've never been to his home. He's never been to my home. Yet he was offering his home to the family members I had in Aden to go and stay with him. That's why we don't have the images you you see with other countries where you have a lot of the camps where the refugees are staying. They're invisible in Yemen because they're staying with other families. Now, you've tried to get assistance to Yemen in terms of of water filters, you've tried to bring medicine, you've changed the way you operate. What what have you tried to do? What happened? And what do you do now? I have a huge network of people I work with here, but also a huge network of people that I work in Yemen. Without these two networks that I have, my work and the success that we have experienced would not be possible. So our first donations of water filters came from Water for Life. It's a Presbyterian church in San Diego uh, that decided that they wanted to donate to Yemen. Uh, we got, and you know, once it got to, to Yemen, we were able to work with a lot of uh, people, our volunteers in Yemen to do that. Our donations of medicine came from AmeriCare, and that was actually a very, um, you know, a huge uh, number of medicine that we were able to distribute to five cancer centers and one kidney center in Yemen, in Aden, in Sana'a, and in Hudayda. So we do get a lot of support for the work we do. I also want to thank here the WFP and WHO because they were the one who helped us the with World the transfer. The World Food Program, the World the Health World Organization. Food, yes, who helped us with the transfer of the medicines to the medical centers. So it, it's not, it's never a one person, it's actually always a network. And it, when, it, when you reach out to people and say, this is what we need done, you'd be surprised at how many people come to your help. Right. And we're able to do a lot with very little. Again, um, so I, I'll just give you an example, which is, uh, I, I feel it's a success for our work. The same basket that is bought by other donor agencies for 60 to $120, we buy it in Yemen because we buy locally. We don't have the transfer uh, cost. We don't have the people who deliver it cost. It costs us $30 to feed a family for a month in Yemen. You feed a family for $30 a month? Yes, a family of six. Wow. So that's what people, when people see that, when people see the numbers, when people see what we can do with the money they donate, uh, they're encouraged and they want to give more. And that's why we are successful because, again, it's all the work is on the shoulders of those who are in Yemen, who are doing the work for us. I mean, we, our team sometimes travels 16 hours on non-paved roads, not counting the paved roads, to go to villages that without us, nobody will go there. 
a lot of the border areas with Saudi Arabia with daily bombing, we work there. So we work in places either the international community cannot get there because of the fighting or they are small settlements and it's too expensive for them to get to. But even though you're doing incredible work with needy populations, it's hard to just get what you're trying to get from the U.S. to Yemen, from Yemen port to the people in need. I mean, if if people are suffering, why is this so hard? Yemen is a man-made catastrophe. It's not a, a natural disaster that is causing this. Yemen is under a blockade, severe restrictions of imports of food, medicine, and essential goods. When I go to Yemen, and I have been uh, three times. And uh, you're an American citizen with a U.S. passport. I am an American citizen. So when we try to send things to Yemen, and I've really been quite discouraged. um, So our first uh, shipment of water filters took eight months to get in. We don't understand why. Eight months to get water filters to Yemen. from December. 2016 to August 2017. Uh, The shipping company could never explain to us why it took that long. I know from UN data that ships can be at sea up to 83 days before they are allowed into a port in Yemen. So why that long? That is baffling to me. You have that first problem. Once it's in a port, especially now in the port of Aden, then there are two restrictions. One is a political restriction, so they don't allow people to get into the port very easily. And the second one is logistical restriction, because the port of Aden is not built or equipped to deal with a large of shipments. And since there have been a lot of divergence, of shipment from the Hodeida port that's well-equipped to do this to Aden, the car that needed to get into the port to get the medicine, and remember, medicine, we have an expiration date. So it took six months to get to Aden, and we already lost six months of the shelf life of the medicine. We, our car queued for four months to get access to the port of Aden. Four months to get access to To the port. To get to the port. And once we got that, and we were able to distribute in Aden, trying to move to Sana'a, we also got stopped another month in Eb because we did not have the proper paperwork to allow us to get to the areas under the control of the government in Sana'a. And so one of the medicines that we had by the time we were able to distribute in Hudaydah and in Sana'a had only one month before it expired. And that's extremely frustrating because I know for sure when I go and visit the hospitals and the clinics and the health centers, the shelves are empty. When you go and visit the local pharmacies, the shelves are empty. I think it's also important to remember that there is a population of 30 million. There is no way on earth that aid can help all the population. Yemen imports 90% of its needs, whether it's food or medicine or essential goods. So are you trying to give cash directly to families to support local markets, to support local supply chains, or or is there a different strategy you're using? Yeah, when we purchase uh, our goods, especially the food baskets, the school supplies and school bags and other goods that are needed locally, we purchase locally. So we purchase where we are going to be um, distributing. This is important for us because we buy products from the local market, but we also buy from the farmers. 
So in areas where they have lentils, we buy lentils. In areas where, in one area, we actually got bought, bought eggs for families because mm. that's an area where they grow a lot of chicken. So we we support the local farmers by purchasing locally. In terms of distributing funds, we're very reluctant to do that because of the U.S. restrictions on sending money to Yemen and making sure that it doesn't go to unsavvy uh, individuals. To unsavory individuals. Yeah, unsavory individuals. So we are very careful with that. You've seen tremendous suffering in a country that you obviously love. Are you optimistic about Yemen? I'm always optimistic about Yemen. I'm always optimistic because I said, you know, people in Yemen are very kind. They're very generous. They will take their shirts and give it to you if you are in need. And so, yes, I am. I think if the regional and the international actors are out of the way, I'm sure the Yemenis will be able to resolve a lot of their conflicts. Yemen is a very old country. We have thousands of years of history uh, of negotiations, of living together, of a lot of people coming together, of tribal customs. So they didn't live as long as they did without knowing how to resolve their issues and their differences and their conflicts. Hopefully, we will get back to those traditions very soon. Aisha, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Up next, John, Amber, and I talk about what the United States should be doing in Yemen. What should the U.S. government consider when looking at the crisis in Yemen? It seems to me that on the governmental level, a lot of it is really being reduced to politics. Congress has a whole range of reasons to be upset with Saudi Arabia. And I think Yemen has given Democrats in Congress a hook because the humanitarian situation is so dire. And we're seeing Yemen as a way to attack the president for his position towards Saudi Arabia. But when we look at Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is an incredibly important U.S. ally in the region. They're considered a stabilizing force in the Gulf and in the region more broadly. So for the United States, Saudi Arabia is a key ally and where Yemen isn't really a huge national security or strategic concern. That's definitely true. But I think that doesn't negate the fact that the Saudi-led coalition has been accused of being responsible for a large part of the humanitarian emergency in, in Yemen. And it's the the worst humanitarian crisis in the world um, or the worst man-made humanitarian crisis in the world. We're talking about 80% of the population needing some form of assistance. Sure. But when we're looking at what motivates the U.S. government to act, I think oftentimes it is national security concerns. So if we're talking about how do we get the government to act in Yemen, we have to talk about, you know, are there safe havens for, for terrorist organizations? Is that something that the United States can combat? And is that why they're going to go into Yemen? Is it to support allied allies, so Saudi Arabia and the UAE, as they, you know, sec- try to secure their borders in Yemen? But the real question is, does supporting these governments actually improve security, or does it create the circumstances under which terrorist groups can thrive and spread? Um, there's an argument to be made that while the U.S. is, is fighting terrorism directly, oftentimes using Emirati troops in partnership, uh, what the Saudis are doing is just causing death and destruction that, that allows, by bombing from the air, it drives more people to seek protection with terrorist groups. The problem, I think, intellectually, that Congress has to figure out is if you take away smart bombs, you reduce targeting, 
does that mean more innocent people get killed or fewer innocent people get killed? But then having said that, I mean, so far, the Saudi-led coalition has conducted over 20,000 strikes. And monitors say that just a third of those have hit military targets. Um, and we've seen really prominent cases where they've They've certainly hit civilian targets. There was that one in August of last year where they hit a, a school bus and killed over 40 school children. The, the question when you hit civilians is, did you intentionally hit civilians? Did you recklessly hit civilians? Or did you hit civilians by mistake because your targeting isn't good or your information isn't good? If your targeting information isn't good, then working with the U.S. government can make it better. If you're reckless about it, Giving them more smart bombs means more people get killed, regardless of whether the, the targeting is right or not. And the UN appointed a team of investigators to to look into this and to look into potential Western complicity in, in human rights abuses. And they presented a 274-page report just last month, which detailed uh, how the United States, Britain, France and others are likely complicit in war crimes because of the weapons sales and, and the intelligence support that they have provided. But if we're talking still about what should the US consider when developing its policy towards Yemen, its considerations are, is Iran supporting the Houthis and does supporting Saudi Arabia and the UAE mean that they're curtailing Iranian proxies in that region? That's a bigger national security concern to the United States than, unfortunately, the humanitarian crisis. I'm not saying that's fair. I just think the, it's the reality. The quite legitimate question is whether the Saudis are inviting the Iranians to use the Houthis as a cheap way to beat up on the Saudis. I think the Iranians are spending something like $10 million a month supporting the Houthis. For that, the Saudis are spending 2 to $5 billion a month fighting the Houthis and dragging their reputation through the mud. The question from a U.S. government perspective is, should we engaging more directly? Should we be engaging less directly? If we pull back, does the war stop or does the war just get messier? Well, I would argue that opposition in the U.S. Congress to um, the U.S. support for the conflict in, in Yemen has already had an impact. I mean, we're currently seeing the UAE withdrawing um, numbers of its troops. And I think part of that is because of a fear that that there's a shift in, in U.S. politics. And, and I think a big part of that is because of the humanitarian implications of it. So I would say that it's it's opposition in the Senate and in the House of Representatives that's causing some of these actors to recalibrate what they're doing in Yemen. And then, of course, there's the question of where is President Trump going to be? Not right now, but where will he be in a month? Where will he be in three months? I think one of the things that must be going through the minds of all the governments in the region is if he could pull out of northeast Syria that quickly, if he could not respond to the Abqaiq uh, attack, if he could not respond to shooting down a drone. I mean, is the United States walking away from the Middle East? And if it is, how should they pursue their conflict? Should they count on the United States being a partner or not? And frankly, the White House is sending more mixed signals than Congress is. Well, I think you make a pretty strong point about how the humanitarian crisis is kind of impacting how the United States is viewing Yemen. But I still don't see the United States pulling away from these core allies. Yes, obviously, we've seen that the United States has quickly withdrawn from northeastern Syria, and that has kind of devastating effects for the Kurds. But in terms of state allies, I don't see the United States actually moving away from Saudi Arabia. And on the counterterrorism mission, Saudi Arabia is a vital ally, not only for using bases to attack terrorists in Yemen, 
but for information sharing and, and all sorts of things the U.S. has been doing actively with Saudi Arabia starting before 9-11 and then actually increasing after 9-11, it's hard to imagine how the U.S. pursues counterterrorism without working closely with the government of Saudi Arabia. I would say in Congress, there remains a, a consensus to preserve the U.S.-Saudi relationship. I think there's also consensus in, in Congress about concern about Iran's activities. And I think there's consensus in Congress that we should be concerned about the humanitarian consequences of this conflict. But where does that leave us? There isn't a, a sort of veto-proof majority for, for anything, really, in Congress. But I do think you see some congressional opportunism going on with here's a way to push the administration, here's a way to push the Saudis. And I think you're going to see that over the coming months. To me, there's no easy answer here. The United States has a ton of considerations when it comes to how is it going to operate within the Middle East? What are its key national interests there? What are key security interests? But I think when it comes to Yemen, the United States Congress is trying to look to see how can they impact um, this region? What is their role when it comes to foreign policy? So my final takeaway from this conversation is that U.S. national security interests really can drive U.S. policies, but that's not the only consideration that we need to take when it comes to Yemen. Definitely. I think the humanitarian part of this is, is only going to get more important going forward as the situation continues to deteriorate. And there are really uncomfortable questions about the complicity that the United States has in that humanitarian crisis. And Washington is in its strangest state I've ever seen. It's certainly in my career. We have hard questions. Do we have a process that can begin to answer hard questions. Sometimes it's very hard to find that process. And those, I think, are the core factors when it comes to looking at the Yemen crisis. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.